show up. You don't have to. <laughs> no, seriously. No, you can. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about that if you can make it. It's in Allen Park. Yeah, it's a seminary. That's seminary. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you can you can walk in. You can walk in. And I think, uh, you know, because I paid for the pastoral staff. Rich can't go. Keith Bass is taking his place. Do you know who Keith is? Yeah. Um, but I don't know if Billy can go, Billy Cochran. But even if all of them are going, still you can go. Dr. Combs and I have been emailing about EFS. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that would be good. So I was like, well, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Thursday night is, is a general session. Um, at the, yeah, there's not, so, I mean, that's not a workshop or anything. Yeah, so you could still do your family time Thursday night. The real action's during the, real action's during the day. <laughs> All right, welcome everybody. And what I'd like for you all to do is just to take a look around you. See how many fewer people they are here tonight than there were the first night. Do you all remember the prophecy that I gave you the first night? So I'm always right about that, okay? It happens, happens every year. We don't even have bad weather. We don't even have snow yet, okay? If we get some snow, what's going to happen, okay? There'll be about three of you. be about three of you here then. But welcome to you guys, you gluttons for punishment. Thanks for showing up. Page six. Page six in your notebooks. And this is how to get the most out of your Bible, as you know, and it has three sections in it. We are in the survey portion. After we're finished with the survey, uh, for about eight of our 12 weeks, uh, then we will go to the second section, which is how to interpret the Bible, and then the final section is how to apply the Bible. So survey, interpretation, and application. We have seen that the Bible is a big book. It's an old book, so it can be intimidating. One of the things that takes intimidation out of it, though, is if you recognize that it's really about just a handful of things. It's about creation, and it's about the fall, and it's about redemption. Creation is God giving an orientation to his world, to his highest creatures, humanity, made in his image. And so God tells them who he is, who they are, what he expects from us. That's creation, orientation. The fall is the entrance of sin. Things go south. Everything becomes distorted. Instead of an orientation, we now are disoriented. There's a disorientation. And that is uh, sin, our problem, uh, and uh, who we are and what our problem is, I should say. Who we are and what our problem is. And then there is uh, the third, redemption. And redemption, thankfully, is God actively pursuing a reorientation to his original creation. And the Bible teaches that God, in fact, is going to restore the world to what he originally made it to be, and he is going to have a people who are as he originally created them. And we are in between now, the, the orientation and the disorientation, and God is in the process of reorienting his world. We, If we have come to Christ, that is the first step in that reorientation. And he enlists us as his instruments to see that happen in the lives of others as well. It's his purpose uh, for, for his, his world. 
to bring people to himself so that his glory will be made, will be made known. His glory will be made known in his world. So, um, Susan, welcome. Don't you love it when you, when you walk in just two minutes late and I just call you out in front of everybody? <laughs> Do you have a notebook? That's <laughs> the reason I did that, though, is I didn't think you had a notebook, but you do have a notebook. Okay, I wanted to make sure, because I have one up here. Everybody have a notebook? All right. So uh, God has made the world, and everything that God does in his world is always for the same purpose, and that is to bring glory to himself. And as I've been emphasizing in our second-hour Sunday class on worry-free decision-making, God's glory is the display of his, his character. And so even allowing the entrance of sin into God's world is part of that glory process because God displays aspects of his character uh, in response to, to sin that otherwise would not be, would not be seen. And so if you, if you want to know why I believe God allowed sin in the world, it's what's called the greater glory approach. And uh, I think that's the right approach. I think that's uh, what the Bible teaches. Uh, but if somebody wants you to defend why God allows evil in his world, I think that's, that's why he does it, the greater glory approach. It shows aspects of his character that otherwise would not be seen. But God has not left it there. He's in the restoration, reorientation process through redemption. He tells us in Genesis 3.15 that that solution to the problem of sin is going to come through the seed of the woman, so it's going to come through a human being. And then God begins to keep track of the lineage through which that human being is going to come. And that's why you have the genealogies in chapter 5 of Genesis and chapter 10 of, of Genesis. And you start to see through uh, Noah and the flood and God's judgment on the world, this cycle that I've mentioned to you a couple of times now of grace and human response and God's judgment. God shows grace. Fallen humanity responds by rejecting that grace. God judges, but then God shows grace again. And he keeps coming back with grace. And he keeps coming back with, with grace. But people keep rejecting it. And God then judges, but then calls people to, to repent. So you see that cycle over and, and over again. And God narrows uh, down his, his uh, redemption program through a particular seed of 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 people through a particular man, Abraham. And beginning in the end of Genesis chapter 11, and then moving forward, you see the Bible's focus on Abraham and his progeny. And over and over again, you have God saying in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, that I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And that's for a reason, because God has now focused on this line. Perhaps if I, you know, the idea for us might be as we read the narrative now of the Bible's story, all right, humanity's a mess because of the fall. Maybe if he just narrows it down to some good people, <laughs> then things will straighten out. But Abraham was not a good person. Abraham was, was what he became only because of God's goodness to him. As I've emphasized, Noah was chosen and spared from the, the flood, not because of anything special in Noah, but because the Bible <coughs> says Noah found grace, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Likewise for Abraham, we saw last week. There was nothing special about Abraham. Abraham was a stone worshiper in Ur. That's what they did. They worshipped idols. 
And yet God in his grace reached down and called this guy out of that and determined to, to use him. And then God plans to show his power now, moving, moving forward. God plans to show his power through, as we're going to see tonight, through uh, Joseph and his brothers. And God sets up through Joseph having his people in Egypt uh, and the, his, showing his mighty power through what's known as the Exodus, and that's the name of the second book in your, in your Bible. So I ask you to turn to page 6, because that's where we left off. And if you look at page 6, at the bottom, the very bottom paragraph says, four of these sons, four of these 12 sons of Jacob, mentioned in the prior paragraph, Jacob's name was changed, changed to Israel, those 12 sons, and their descendants became the 12 tribes of Israel. And four of these sons are worth mentioning. Levi was the father of the tribe through, whom, through which came Moses and his brother Aaron. The priests were descendants of Aaron. And then the second son, Judah, was the father of the tribe that produced David, and a thousand years after David, produced Jesus. Benjamin was the youngest son and the father of the two main Sauls in the Bible. King Saul, but also in the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus, uh, whose Roman name is the Apostle Paul. And then Joseph was the youngest son and the one that the Bible follows next. So that's what we're going to see now in the life of Joseph. And if you look at the next page, page 7, you've got that chart. And I mentioned as we were leaving last night that the chart... The chart shows that the chart is filled in by what's on the previous page. So the chart on page 7, if you were to look on page 6 and the bolded words there, that's what fills in the, the chart for you on page 7. Was everybody pretty much able to do that? If not, I encourage you to do it. Uh, let me just take a minute here. Top of page 7 is the one that says the first 2,000 years, which is what we're looking at from Adam to Abraham and the, and the patriarchs. And you see up the top there, you've got 1, 6, and, and 12. And those box numbers, you see the asterisk by number 1 down at the very bottom? Hey, by the way, do you guys know how to pronounce asterisk? No. Yeah, that's the way you say it, right? Asterisk. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but, uh, but, do, but sometimes people say asterisk. Okay, but it's not that. <laughs> so anyway, I feel better. Move on. To... <laughs> so you've got the asterisk at the uh, top, and then down at the bottom it says the box numbers on this page represent the chapters of Genesis. Chapter 1, who's the major character? That would be Adam. What's the major event? It is creation. And then chapter 6, the major person is Noah. And you see the timeline underneath their names and the events. That you've got creation as the event, but then you've got Noah born in about 3000 BC. 500 years later, you have the flood. That's the event in 2500 BC. Chapter 12, Abraham is the main person. And the event is uh, the move 
you could just put the word move there, his relocation from Ur to the land that I will show you. That's the, that's the major event, and that's 2000 BC. So this page and these charts I think are helpful because they help you just to see the timeline and you see who the, the major people are. Uh, along the left side, you've got that rectangular box then going down the left side. And Genesis 1 and 2 deal with creation. Genesis 3, sin. Genesis 4, murder. Creation, sin, murder. Chapter 5, genealogy. If you skip down to chapter 10, it's also genealogy. So 5 and 10 are genealogy. That is the ancestry and the progeny. 6, 7, and 8 are about Noah and the flood. Noah slash flood. So creation, sin, murder, genealogy, Noah slash, slash flood. <coughs> chapter 9 is the rainbow. 10, I already said, is the genealogy. Chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel and then, and then Abraham. Genealogy, Tower of Babel, and then Abraham. And then you see uh, on the right there the family tree. You've got Adam. Adam has Cain, Abel, Seth as children and others. But Cain, Abel, and Seth are mentioned by name. Sometimes people say, where did Cain get his wife? Remember, you know, so they have, so where did he, where did he get a wife? The Bible tells us he goes and marries somebody. Oh, wait a minute. You know, I've got Adam and Eve, they have a child, who's he supposed to go and marry? But these people lived extraordinarily long lives, remember, because they are close to creation and the non-contamination of the gene pool at, at that point. So they lived these extraordinarily long lives. And so by the time that uh, Cain marries, you have time for there to be whole population cities uh, that have developed. But ultimately, he's marrying a relative. And ultimately, we're marrying a relative too, right? I mean, ultimately, since we're all from, but, but, not, a, but not a particular, necessarily a close relative, because you've had all of this time. So the, that question, that canard comes up, you know, where did Cain get his wife? So just next time you hear that, smack the person who says it. And I mean, tell them, do it in a Christian way. But, you know, and then say, look, this is, the way, this is the way it is. And so it is Adam and then Cain, Abel, Seth. But then God is keeping track of the line. And you notice that it's uh, through Seth. One of Seth's descendants is Noah. And so Noah's right underneath Seth. You could even draw a line there from Seth to Noah. And this is the way I understand personally uh, in Genesis chapter 6 when the Bible talks about this kind of strange phenomenon where it says that the sons of uh, the, the daughters, the sons of God cohabited with the daughters of men. And some people think that's like, you know, this kind of weird human angelic kind of thing going on and they produce this, this weird race of people. And I think it's just, you know, you've got what God said in Genesis 3.15. There's going to be enmity between your seed and her seed. And the seed, of, the seed of Seth is now going to be prominent moving forward. And these are, the, these are the sons of God. And so here is Noah, one of those. And Noah has these three sons that survived the, the flood, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. 
And Shem of those three continues the line, and the Bible follows the line of Shem. And one of the descendants of Shem, you see there, is Terah, and Terah is the father of Abraham. So that Abraham is a Shemite. And people who don't like Abraham's lines are anti-Shemites. And really, that's where that, that's where that idea comes from. An anti-Semitic is really anti-Shemitic. And it's because, of, it's because of this. Okay? Everybody got that filled in? So, what are we at? Page 8, then? For the second 2,000 years. That's the first 2,000 years. And remember, the first 2,000 years of biblical history are in the first 12 chapters of the Bible covers 2,000 years. But then the, the rest of the Bible now, moving forward, is going to cover a couple of thousand years, from Genesis 12 all the way through the book of, of Malachi is going to cover 2,000 years. And so much is covered there, Genesis 12 to Malachi, that we have two parts to this. Top of page 8, the second 2,000 years, but part 1, which goes now from Abraham to King David and the monarchy, or the, the United Kingdom. Top of page 8, this section covers the period from Abraham through Moses to David. 2,000, 1,500, 1,000. The key figures, they are the key figures who frame this thousand years of history, this millennium. Uh, that's from the Latin for a thousand, millennium. So this millennium of history. Specifically, we shall begin where we left off with Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. And we'll end with David's son, Solomon. This era can be divided into seven events. The first is about, is about Joseph. Joseph entered Egypt. Joseph was favored by his father Jacob, who was renamed Israel, as we saw, but Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, so they sold him into slavery to Egypt. He's bought by a man named Potiphar, a rich man who was a captain of Pharaoh's, uh, uh, was captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. Because Joseph would not have relations with Potiphar's wife, she had him thrown into prison. While he was there, he interpreted a dream of Pharaoh the king, which predicted seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Impressed by that knowledge, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of handling the food supply for the next 14 years. Under Joseph's leadership, Egypt stored food and was uniquely prepared for the seven years of famine. The famine forced Joseph's family to journey to Egypt or to starve. Now, here's what's, uh, what's important uh, about that. Well, a few things. One, that story of how God wove into the life and through the life of Joseph his plan is instructive for us going forward. Because God in his providence guides everything that, that happens. And you see that in a very stark way in the life of Joseph. I mean, here's a guy who's given up for dead, really, by his brothers. They sell him into slavery. They figure they're never going to see him again. And yet... In that paragraph, you see how God operated in the life of Joseph to bring Joseph, of all people now, to prominence in, of all places, Egypt. He winds up in Egypt. Well, and then God orchestrates it so that a famine occurs, and the family winds up having to come to Egypt to beg for food. 
And who are they begging for food? It's none other than Joseph. Now, you think about you know, bad things happening in our world, a famine. But who's ultimately behind all of that? Who's behind the famine? So we need to learn this early on. The hero of the story that's behind everything that happens in the Bible is not Joseph. It's not going to be Daniel going forward. It's not going to be Moses here in a little bit. It's not Abraham. It's not anybody else. It's God. The hero of the story is God. God is the one orchestrating what happens. God is the one who's orchestrating what happens now. And the Bible's story makes that very clear. If, you don't allow your, if we don't allow our human bias to, to get in the way, and the way we often teach these stories, unfortunately, is we make the human characters the, the heroes. God's the hero. God's orchestrating this. God's moving this in his direction at all times and in all places. And he is using everything and everyone to accomplish his purposes. No one and no thing is outside of it. There's not a maverick molecule in God's universe. There's not a molecule that's doing its own thing. Not one. You know, I'm glad that we were able to, a couple weeks ago, you know, shoot, uh, you know, a meteor or something off its course. Did you guys read about that? You know, and so ultimately if there's one coming at us, you know, we'll be able to throw it off course. But, you know, I, I know what's going to happen in the future. I read a book about it. And so, you know, the earth's going to be here at the end. I know that because God said so. And God controls all the meteors and, and everything else. Um, so, I mean, it can still do damage to all kinds of things, and it's really cool to, to see that, but nothing is outside God's control. Remember this. Everybody works for God. Even if they don't know it, even if they don't want to. Everybody works for God. Pharaoh worked for God, and he didn't know it. And he didn't want to. But he did God's bidding. And he put Joseph in the position that God had planned for Joseph. And what was God's, what was God's ultimate plan for this? This particular episode? It was so that his people now, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph's father, Jacob, that they're now going to be in Egypt. God had determined that they would be in Egypt. And that they would be enslaved in Egypt. And why were they going to be enslaved in Egypt? Why does, God, why does God plan for them to be enslaved in Egypt? Well, remember, God does everything he does for his glory. What's his glory? The display of his... Anybody help me here? His character? It's a display of his character. So what's God going to do now when they're in Egypt? He's going to display his character. He's going to show his power. He's going to show his love for his people as well. So everything that happens in your life, everything that happens in God's world, everything you read about in Scripture is all that. It's all God's glory. It's all for that, for that purpose. So the reason they're in Egypt to begin with is because God put them there and orchestrated it for them to be there so that he can bring them out. So don't ever read the Bible and go, man, those guys were just at the wrong place at the wrong time, you know? Man, if they wouldn't have done that, now this is God behind it all, so 
First, there's Joseph and Joseph entering Egypt through the providence, the sovereign providence of God. And then God raises up. You're now to the second book in your Bible. So there's 66 books in the Bible. This is our what? Fourth week? Fifth something. So at this rate, we're only in the second book of 66. We're in real trouble here. But, <laughs> but we're actually going to start making some leaps now, okay? <laughs> the first book sets the foundation for everything else. That's why we have to spend a good amount of time on it, okay? But we'll go at a faster clip here now, going through the books and the sections. But you're in the second book of the Bible now, the, the book of Exodus. Genesis, the book of beginnings, but now Exodus, the exit, the withdrawal, the, the removal from Egypt, and thus the, the name. And Moses, number two there on page eight, notice how I smoothly do that. People come in and I say, on page eight. Okay. Thanks for that. <laughs> I'm not going to say, but it might be a couple people who just came up front here. <laughs> Moses leads the, the Exodus from Exodus chapters 3 through 20. The Israelites were in Egypt 430 years. They grew to be a nation of about 2.5 million people. But they became slaves of the Egyptians after Joseph died. So the Bible tells us, you know, here's Joseph. Joseph has found favor. Joseph has risen to prominence. His family has come, they stay in Egypt, they have children in Egypt, they grow to be this great number, and Joseph dies, and later, the Bible tells us in the book of Exodus that a pharaoh arose, and this is what it says, quote, who knew not Joseph. So yeah, Joseph was great, but Joseph has been gone for a long time, and I, this new pharaoh, don't care, I don't care about Joseph. And he's hostile to Joseph's people. He's hostile to the Jews, the, the people from the uh, ancestry of, of Abraham. So they knew not Joseph and enslaved the Hebrews, the Jews. Now how do we know there are about two and a half million? Well, it would be, it would be something if there was a book that kept track of numbers. Turns out there is one by that name, as a matter of fact. In fact, the fourth book of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And the book of Numbers is so named because it actually keeps track of this kind of stuff. And in Numbers chapter 1 and verse 46, Numbers 146, it says, 603,550 adult men came out of Egypt. So it gives you the number, 603,550 but that's adult men, not the women and children. And so the estimate here is based upon them being married and then having children. So you've got two million, two and a half million people coming out of, of Egypt. And when is this, when's this happening? I mean, Moses is the one God uses to effect the, the exodus, middle of that second paragraph. God raised up a new leader named Moses around 1500 B.C. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt across the Red Sea on dry land. So how do we know it's 1500 B.C.? If you care to jot down next to that paragraph, 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. 1 Kings 6.1. And 1 Kings 6.1 says... You know, very first, verse 1, very first verse of that chapter, and it's setting 
the time frame for now what's going to follow in that chapter, 1 Kings chapter 6. And it says uh, it was in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. And then says 480 years after the Israelites left Egypt. So the fourth year of Solomon's reign is 480 years after the Exodus. So if we want to know when the Exodus was, we could calculate it based on that verse, based upon when Solomon was the king. Solomon became king in 970, 970 B.C. 970 B.C. And it says in that verse, fourth year. So what would be the fourth year of Solomon's reign if he started in 970? It wouldn't be 974, you're going the wrong way. These are B.C. You want to come closer to us. So it's 966 B.C. The fourth year of Solomon's reign is 966. And then if you add 480 years to that, you come up with 1446 B.C. That's the 15th century B.C. That's when the exodus occurred, according to 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. Now, why do we care about specifically when the, the year was? Well, you know, throughout the exodus narrative, you have Pharaoh being called throughout Pharaoh. He's just Pharaoh. He doesn't have a name, apparently. And this is on purpose, by the way. And I mean, I mean that. It's on purpose. That God does not name Pharaoh. He's just Pharaoh. There'll be another Pharaoh after him. He's not named. He's not anybody in particular, as a matter of fact. And God, and God is showing this on purpose. Did you know that, um, that all of the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt, you guys remember that? That all of the ten plagues were all designed to refute one of the gods of Egypt. There was a god of flies, so one of the plagues is, is flies. There's a god of life and death, the final one is the, you know, the angel of death. In every one of those plagues, it is God showing his power over Egypt and over Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's just a guy with a title. But it'd be cool to know who Pharaoh really was. Um, and so if you know the years when this is happening, you can, in secular history, determine who the Pharaoh was. It was a guy named Amenhotep. You're going, oh, wait a minute, I saw the movie. <laughs> and Yul Brenner was, was the Pharaoh, right? <laughs> well, Yul Brenner played Ramses. Uh, but Ramses was, was the pharaoh a couple hundred years later. So the, you know, the movie, it's a cool movie. I think it's, I think it's a cool movie. Um, it you know, came out in the late 50s, won an Academy Award. The Ten Commandments was shown at drive-ins all over. You know, they had drive-ins back then. You guys know what I'm talking about, drive-in? Okay. My dad and mom met at the drive-in watching the Ten Commandments. I'm here because of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> okay. And, and so it's a, it's a great movie, and it's a great story, but they get a few details wrong, and the Ramses, the Pharaoh, he's got the wrong, we got the wrong Pharaoh. 
couple of hundred years later. So it's 1500 BC. Moses leads them out of, of Egypt. And they wander, many of you know the story, uh, in the wilderness, in the desert, for 40 years. Number three here. Israel received the law, and first, Israel receiving the law and the plans for the tabernacle, then I'll talk about the wandering. At Mount Sinai, God gave Israel two things, the law and his plans for the tabernacle. So they received the law and they built the tabernacle, including its most important piece of furniture, the Ark of, of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant is where God pledged that he would meet with his people. Now, God doesn't have to do that, but he deigns to do that. He condescends to do that for the sake of his people. It's an act of grace for him to do so. And they are to construct the tabernacle according to his requirements. But they also are only going to have God, God meeting with them in that special way in that place. And then over time, there is the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, and only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies, which is this place in later the temple, as opposed to the mobile tabernacle. Uh, but God graciously meets with them. Now, as you move forward in the New Testament, you find God not being, you know, hovering over a, a box in a compartment in a place. But you have God having come to earth to meet with humanity. And in John chapter 1, John chapter 1, as it announces, talks about the coming of God to earth. And we saw a few weeks ago that John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then goes on to say, uh, that, and he made all things. And verse 3 says, And apart from him was not anything made that has been made. And then it goes on to describe this one who is the Word, capital W-O-R-D. When you get down to chapter 14, it says this, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When you get to verse 18, it specifically, John chapter 1 and verse 18, specifically names who this one, the Word, is. Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He is the one going back to Genesis chapter 3 now that's going to come through the seed of the woman. And God has kept track of the uh, lineage. And Jesus is that, that one. Now I bring it up. John 1 14 for this reason. When it says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling. When it says made his dwelling, that is literally tabernacled among us. What a cool thing. The tabernacle used to be this compartment. And now the place where God meets with man is in Jesus Christ, the God-man. John chapter 1 and verse 14. You might jot down Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. Colossians 2, 9. That says, in him, in Christ, dwells, again, is tabernacled. All of the fullness of deity in bodily form. That's what it says. So he tabernacled with us. He has come to, to meet with us. Isaiah chapter uh, 7 and verse 14, his name will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So they receive the law, they receive the plans for the tabernacle, and, but they wander in the wilderness, number four here. 
They proceeded north to a city just south of Canaan called Kadesh Barnea. There they sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan to take possession as the Lord, the God of our fathers, has spoken to you. When the spies returned to Joshua and Caleb said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it. But the rest said, we're not able to go up against the people for they are too strong. Consequently, the Israelites decided not to go into the promised land. So, think about that. God sends, or they, they send 12 spies in to, to check it out. God says, go take the land. God is the one who has, with a mighty hand, brought them out of Egypt. He says, go do this, and they go, you know, let us check to make sure the time's right. And then when they go, two of them come back and say, yeah, we should obey God. And the other ten say no. And they, and they don't. And God reacts by condemning them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, why 40, why 40 years? Well, it's 40 years because uh, the book of Numbers tells us. The book of Numbers tells us in chapter, I think it's chapter 11 and verse 44, but... I'm pretty sure. Numbers 11:44, I think. But it says that in Numbers, the reason that they wandered for 40 years is God said, You're going to, you are going to wander one year for every day that you hesitated. See, it was for 40 days that these guys went and spied it out. And God says, Your punishment now is going to be one year for every day. And so it wasn't, you know, arbitrary, this 40 years. One year for, for every day. And every, everyone 20 years and older at the time of that fateful decision died during the wilderness wandering except Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. All right, how many people did we say came out? Okay, we got a bunch of death going on here, don't we? over a 40-year period. So this now gives new meaning to a psalm in your Bible. You have a book called the Book of Psalms. When you turn to a psalm or you reference a psalm, the reference is psalm, singular, 121 or whatever. It's not Psalms 121, because there are not multiple Psalms that are number 121. There's only one Psalm that's 121. It's Psalm 121. So, see, my job here is to teach the Bible, teach theology, but also die happy because people don't say asterisk, <laughs> and they don't say Psalms 121, okay? There's a Psalm... I mentioned asterisk before you guys came in, I think. Were you here when I said that? Yeah, I went. Okay. And you, and you laughed anyway. And you didn't know what I was talking charity. about. <laughs> A charity grin. Thank you. A charity chuckle for me. Thank you. Got your back. So, Psalm, but, but one of the, there are 150 of them in the book of Psalms. 90, Psalm number 90. And, and almost all of the psalms, most of the psalms are written by David. 
but one of 150 is written by Moses. This guy. One. Psalm 90. If you go read Psalm 90, I have a sermon. I have a sermon on Psalm 90. It's a great psalm once you know the background to it. One, Moses wrote it. And two, all the stuff Moses went through and all the death that Moses saw. In 40 years, he sees a couple million people die. I even did the math on it so that it comes out to, to something like, you know, three to four people are dying every 15 minutes on average. Now, it didn't happen smooth like that. You know, they had some spots where a lot of people died at the same time. But if you just do the math on it, he's seen tons of death, and he writes about it in Psalm number 90. And he sees the consequences of sin in a very stark way. And he writes about it in Psalm 90. So I would encourage you to read Psalm 90 with, with that in mind. And these three um, survive, Moses, Joshua, and, and Caleb. Joshua is the successor to Moses. Moses, uh, Moses dies at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. As we saw in our opening week, our introductory week, Moses wrote the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He dies at the end of Deuteronomy, and his death is recorded at the end, so he obviously didn't write that piece. So a, la a later person uh, added that, perhaps even Joshua, and then we have next the book of Joshua. And Joshua is his, is his successor to lead, uh, to lead Israel. Number five here, Joshua conquered the land. After these 40 years, the Israelites conquered the east side of the Georgia Jordan River. Then Moses gave a long speech, probably the book of Deuteronomy, and he died. Next, God appointed Joshua to lead the Israelites across the Jordan River where they conquered Jericho, Ai, and most of the land of Canaan. Now, notice that Joshua leads them into the Promised Land, crossing the River Jordan. God parts the River Jordan. Now, that's not quite as well known as the parting of the Red Sea. But it actually happened. Now, anybody got a wild guess as to why God might have done that? I mean, Moses was an extraordinary leader over an extraordinary period of time. And he's the first leader of the nation, Israel as a nation, with God's law, God's requirements, all of that. And now you're going to be the second guy to take his place. That's going to be tough shoot sandals to fill, right? And so God goes out of his way. As you read what happens with Joshua, God is going out of his way to put his stamp of approval on Joshua. That Joshua is my guy. I mean, Joshua is one of the, the two spies who are going to obey God and says, yes, let's go in and do this. And then God shows that his hand is upon Joshua as it was with Moses in Joshua doing the same kind of thing that Moses was able to do. You may remember the story. They go into Jericho. They conquered Jericho through a weird military strategy <laughs> of marching around the city and banging, you know, clanging cymbals and so on. Um, but they, they meet there. Um, they, they meet someone named Rahab. And Rahab 
is a prostitute. And yet Rahab has heard about the God of Israel and believes in the God of these people that are coming into the promised land, into Canaan. And she's willing to hide uh, some, of the, some of the Israelites uh, in order to protect them. And God honors that. And Rahab is mentioned later in your Bible. In Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is your New Testament. It's the beginning of the New Testament. It's the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. And who shows up but Rahab? Rahab in the lineage of Jesus. And God honors her memory in the genealogy of Jesus, actually orchestrating events so that she's part of the line. She's mentioned as well in uh, the, book of, the book of Hebrews, as also, in Faith's Hall of Fame. Rahab. You have four women mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, four. And Bathsheba is one of them who sinned with David and had Solomon as, as a son and as part of the genealogy of Jesus. So Tamar is, is another one. Tamar's got this checkered background from Genesis chapter. So it's, and it's all on purpose. It's God showing his grace. And showing his grace extends to, to everyone and all kinds of people. So you have... The five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Remember one of the four sons of, of Jacob that page 8, no, page 6, thank you, page 6, took note of, bottom of page 6. One of the four sons was Levi. And it says that the priests came out of, were the descendants of Levi. And that's why you have a book called Leviticus. And it's got all the priestly stuff in it. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Levi, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, you have the Ten Commandments being written a second time. The first time is in Exodus chapter 20 when God first gave the law in the Exodus. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, the law is printed again. And the name of that book, Deuter, like, almost like ditto, Deuteronomos, law, Deuteronomy, second law. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then the seventh book is Judges. And the book of Judges is ugly. I mean, the people have gone in, they have taken the land through fits and starts. You know, sometimes they go and they take a land, but then other times they're routed. Ai, this little, this little town, at first they're defeated because they disobey God. They have to regroup, they go in and they finally take Ai. And it kind of happens like that. But they do take the land. They're in the land, but as, the, as sinful people are wont to do, they are sinning. Sinners going to sin. Okay? 
And that's what they're and that's what they're doing. You see the cycle, as I tell you, God's grace, man's sinful response, judgment, God's grace, sinful. All right. So now they're in the land. Judges rule, bottom of page of page eight. I've got a different pagination, that's why I get messed up. Page eight. The judges maintained the land. After Joshua was there, after Joshua, there was a time of individual leaders called judges. Samson and Samuel were two such. Samson, the long-haired warrior. Samuel was a leader of diplomacy and, and wisdom. Here's one of the refrains that you have in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a dark note. Everyone did what he wanted. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. It's a refrain throughout the book of Judges. The book of Judges has 21 chapters. When you get to chapter 21 and verse 25, Judges 21, 25, Verse 25 is the last verse of the last chapter of Judges. The final verse in Judges says that. In those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it ends there. Well, there's a pick-me-up book for you. If you're ever feeling down, read the book of Judges. That's how it ends. And it ends that way on purpose. Because the eighth book in your Bible is a little four-chapter book called the book of Ruth. And Ruth chapter 1 starts this way. Quote, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. All right. So if you've been reading straight through, and you read the book of Judges, and you read the refrain... In those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes and it ends that way. And now you come to this eighth book and it starts in the days when the judges ruled. What are you supposed to think? These are dark days. This is bad. This is a bad omen at the very beginning of the book of Ruth and that's exactly what you're supposed to think. On purpose, it, it, it invokes the name of the judges so that your mind will go to negative. Not good. Disobedience. And sure enough, what happens immediately in the first verses of the book of Ruth is disobedience. There's a famine in Israel and there's a man named Elimelech. And Elimelech decides... I'm going to go get food for my family. Now, that's all good. Except he decides, I'm going to go to Moab to get it. And the problem is, when you go back to the book of Genesis, you find that God said, Moab is off limits. You're not supposed to go to Moab. So here's a Limelech saying to himself, but God, desperate times require desperate measures. Okay, So I'm going to Moab. So he does. He goes to Moab. And he takes his uh, wife, Naomi. And he takes his two sons. And they go to Moab. It's not going to go well. 
you can predict just after the first line. In the days when the judges ruled. People are disobedient, and Elimelech is disobedient. He goes to Moab. Now, I'll tell you the rest of the story here pretty quick. But just as an application for yourself, as we go through these things, I want you, I want me, I want us to apply these things to ourselves. Guys and gals, you don't take, you don't take matters into your own hands. You do what God says. Period. You don't know better. You think you do. I think I do. If your marriage is not going well, you don't get to divorce because you don't like it. Because God said you don't. There are a couple of grounds for divorce in the Bible. But not liking it isn't one of them. You don't take matters into your own hands. As we move forward, you're going to see in 2 Samuel the story of the Ark of the Covenant that we've already been introduced to, having been taken by the Philistines. And David, who we'll see in a bit, David goes and is able to conquer the Philistines and recover the Ark of the Covenant and to bring it back to Jerusalem. The Ark is holy enough that God says, you don't touch it. Don't touch the box. So make a special cart to put it on with poles that go through rings around the bottom of the Ark of the Covenant. And guys will carry it when they need to and they can put it on the cart when they need to. But you are not to touch the Ark. You guys remember the story? And so they're bringing it along and the, the, it becomes unsteady. They've hit some rocky ground, some rough terrain. It looks like it's going to fall. Well, God didn't. God didn't account for that, did he? I mean, when God, said don't, when God said don't touch it, he apparently did not know it's rough terrain. I mean, this is the way we think. You know, we, we, we chuckle, and it is humorous, but I can't tell you guys, I am 60 years old. I've been in ministry for 30 years now. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody sitting on the other side of my desk who did something stupid with their lives because they knew better than God. So think about yourself, myself, with regard to that. And so one of the guys is Uzzah. And Uzzah goes down in infamy for having reached out to steady the ark. And any of us could see ourselves doing it, couldn't we? He's disobeying God. And God wasn't light, by the way, about you know, these commands. He made it very explicit about who could do it, how it was supposed to be done. So it wasn't poor Uzzah just got you know, a, a two-minute drill and then he got ripped off by putting his hand out. No, he touches it to steady it and he dies summarily. So God means it. When God says to do something, we do it. And then we trust him with the results. All right, so we're in the book of Ruth, and it's in the day of the judges, and it's a negative time, and people are disobeying, and Elimelech decides to take matters in his own hands, and he goes into Moab, and he takes Naomi, and he takes his sons, and what do his sons do? They go and marry a couple of Moabite women. Well, you're not supposed to be intermarrying with the pagan nations, but they do. 
And so one of them is Ruth, the Moabitess. And what happens while they're in Moab? Elimelech dies. The two sons die. And now you have three widows. And you're to read into that, this is God judging. Disobedience. And you've got these three, you've got these three widows now. So the three widows went to the Social Security office and applied for win widow's benefits. But of course, there are no widow's benefits, right? In a patriarchal society, three women trying to figure it out. They go back to Israel. And when they go back to Israel, uh, Naomi uh, leads them, but the one daughter-in-law decides to stay behind. But Ruth has become so close to her mother-in-law that even though she's not an Israelite, she's not a Jew, she's a Moabite, she goes with her. And when you come to chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, it says in verse 3, this is one of the great phrases in the entire Word of God. It says this, as it turned out, let's stop there. At Ruth chapter 2 and verse 3, as it turned out. Why do you think it turned out that way? Because God's planning this thing, right? This is God's story, remember? And as it turned out, the hometown of Elimelech and thus Naomi is a town called Bethlehem. And when they, when they get there, You've got, these two, you've got these two widows, and Naomi is in advanced years. She's too old to remarry, but Ruth is a, a young woman. And there is a law in Israel, in the law that God gave through Moses. The law is not just the Ten Commandments. It's rather 613 requirements and pro commandments and prohibitions, 613. And part of that is called uh, the law of Leverite marriage. And here's what it says. It says that the next of kin is supposed to take care of Mary and take care of a widow. So this was Israel's social security system, in effect. And they go to Bethlehem, and there's a guy there who is wealthy, and he has land, and... Um, he allows Ruth, as this widow, to glean on his property. Now, I say glean. In the law of Israel, this was their welfare system. So the Social Security system is the law of Leverite marriage. And their welfare system is gleaning. That is, you, you work for your, your welfare check. And how do you work? You're able to follow behind the harvesters on a farm, and you're able to pick up the stuff that they miss. And when they round the corners, you're able to take the corner stuff. So behind them, the stuff they miss and the corner stuff, and Ruth is sent out to do this to get food for them. And the guy who owns it is a guy named Boaz who notices Ruth. She's beautiful. He's drawn to her, and he asks about her. And it turns out he's related to Elimelech. 
So he can redeem, and that's actually the word that's used, he can redeem her. He can marry her. But there's one problem, there's a, somebody, a relative who's closer, and he gets first dibs. Now Boaz could have just gone ahead and married her, and this guy will never be the wiser. And that guy wasn't in Bethlehem. They had to go and send word to him. But he was an honest man, and so he did. But the other guy refused. And Boaz marries Ruth. And chapter 3 talks about, in chapter 4, their, their romance, and then their marriage. And then out of that, um, Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed, O-B-E-D. And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. And Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. And remember I said four women show up in the genealogy of Jesus? Ruth is the other one. So when I said in chapter 2 and verse 3, as it turned out, one of the great phrases in all the Bible, it turned out that way because that little four-chapter book has a hinge upon which all that follows uh, comes, comes about, and it's through the line of David that Jesus ultimately comes. Bottom of page 8, Saul, David, and Solomon ruled the land. After the judges came a time of kings and prophets. The first three were Saul and David and Solomon. Each reigned around 40 years, but David was the beginning of the true monarchy. So what you had, as you read through your Old Testament, is you had three kinds of leaders. You had, you had the judges as a fourth, but the three primary kinds of leaders you had in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, were prophets and priests and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings. And the thing you're supposed to get as you look at the lives of every last one of them is that they all failed. And it's supposed to point you to a coming prophet, priest, and king who will not fail. All right. We'll continue next week.